Greetings, programs, and welcome to the Awesome Friday Podcast. Uh, my name is Matthew, and with me, as always, is Simon. How are you, Simon? Hello. I'm really, okay, thank I really you. cut right to the chase that time. Like, no preamble at all. Just like, hey, it's us. It's us. We're back. Um, <laughs> we're, we're here again. Um, I'm good. I find I had a week in Whistler. Um, chilling out with my family, which was very, very nice. Chilling out because it was cold. Um, but we were... <laughs> That's awful. Don't don't uh, ever look. Look, okay. <laughs> One of the great joys in my life I've discovered is that my son is uh, how old is Elliot now? He's eleven. Yeah. Uh, and. He Why do I have to tell you that your son know. is 11? I don't know, because that's just what my brain you know, is. Actually, no, probably it's because you have an 11-year-old. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the exact reason. Um, and he's at the exact age now where he can work out puns after about three seconds. So it's now my job as an English gentleman to feed him just the worst like language-based puns uh, based on anything I can think of and just watch for them to hit and the pain, the mental anguish as he works out that this was meant to be a joke. And I thought this was great until I realized quite recently that this is exactly what my dad did to me. <laughs> and I hated yeah. it. But um, but now he started making up his own puns, as has my daughter. My son's a bit more successful. My, dad's, my daughter's puns are a bit more cerebral, should we say? But she's... <laughs> she's uh, she's getting there so um i'm very i'm very glad that uh i'm bringing in the true colonial spirit i'm bringing the english sense of humor into two little canadians so they can be bullied at school for telling terrible puns uh, for the rest of their lives so, I mean, yeah, so that's, I, a, that's a parent's job, isn't it? It doesn't really matter be, where they're in school. They're going to get bullied based on their father's humor. That's just how That's it works. true. You'll be very proud, though, because you know my son very, very well. And um, we, I bought him. We found this amazing uh, Vietnamese corner store that was selling U.S. soda drinks. So he had a, cre- a Dr. Pepper cream soda, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you've ever had that. And I had a Cherry 7-Up, and they were both gorgeous. And when I was finished, I gave him my can and he took his, I said, please take it to the bin, put them in the bin. And he went halfway and he turned around and shouted, hey, dad, I'm a toucan. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing. I'm just very proud. I'm just very, very proud. And that um, I've really just ruined him in this way. <laughs> uh, so it's okay. So we went we went to Whistler, which was very nice. If you're unaware of Whistler, it's a mountain. And it's uh, populated by Australians and British people who are all absolutely charming. And we went tubing, which is when you go up a mountain and then throw yourself down it on a tyre. And, yeah, have um, you never done that before? No, I guess no. well, you grew up in a place without snow. That's right. And and we grew up in a. We're, the British are quite risk adverse. I think we don't tend to throw ourselves down mountains. In fact, instead of going down a mountain on a tube, we run down hills chasing cheese. <laughs> but that's a different story. I mean, but, we do um, that too. It actually happens in Whistler in the summer. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. Actually, it was it was very very colonial there. Um, but it was fun. It was good, and uh, we did. Uh, what else? Did do we went for a nighttime um walk through the woods where they set up this light show with like holographic projectors and that was really cool so it was nice it was really really nice and our airbnb had all of the cable and i don't have cable so it was nice to spend 
too much time flicking through cable channels trying to work out what to watch. It's actually a really interesting, I think, fact that you were on holiday for a week and we're always texting regardless, but during the times, oftentimes when you go on holiday for a week or whatever, the texts we exchange are you going like, is this what cable's like all the time? <laughs> There's just so many channels. I'm just I'm just watching a movie that like, Deep Blue Sea is on TV right now. <laughs> like, every time did, you're on holiday you know, without fail, that's how it goes. You, know you, you can turn on your television and watch Mel Brooks, the producers, in full on your television. Yes, yes. without without having had to have asked for it first. Honestly, yeah. Honestly, turning on a channel and there was a guy going, "Good afternoon." Well. Our next feature is Mel Brooks, the producers. And then for five minutes, this mustachio guy gave me this background of how this film was like reviewed and how, and then finally he was like, and so please sit back and enjoy our presentation of the producers. I was like, yeah, thank you. It's just, I felt yeah. like I'd found something really special because I hadn't gone to a streaming service and made a decision. I'm really bad at making decisions as to what to watch. So I watched Predator 2. What else did I text you about? Um, Live Free or Die Hard, which is terrible. Die Hard 2. Um, uh, yeah, you had a bit of a Rennie Harlan, Rennie Harlan fest there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no bad thing. 2001, the end of it anyway, with my, my wife and kids looking very confused by the end of 2001. Um, and, I gotta say, uh, I, do, I do actually really love literally everyone on turner classics who does the the intro outro to the films where they're like oh fantastic every single one of them is great and every single one of their intros yeah. is great and i always appreciate it and they're like sit back and enjoy our presentation of 1939's the saint and you're like <laughs> yeah i am gonna do that <laughs> thank you like, <laughs> i just i i just really um wish that Shaw, who i've done some research into this because t now help me is turner is TCM, right? Yes. Turner Classic right. Movies. Turner Classic Movies is only available in Canada through the Shaw Cable Network. So Shaw bought TCM for Well, I think they're on, they're on TELUS, aren't they? Because I have, I have uh, it on TELUS. So, uh, I think anyway. It's, I think it's probably Bell and TELUS, but either way. The, this is one of the few um, services that don't have their own apps. Like AMC, I discovered as well. And they have their own app, which is fantastic. But TCM is only through cable. And I don't have cable. And I'm, I am I just want, I've got Roku and Apple and all these different things. I'm like, just make your own app. Just stream everything on your app. I will pay you money a month because like Criterion is way too cerebral for me. I, 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 I don't want to turn on like a, a German uh, existential crisis in black and white to, to enjoy over my dinner. I want something that is classic, but a bit more well-known than what Criterion tends to have. And Criterion is quite expensive as well. I want all the intros and the outros. I want this TCM this month are doing just Oscar nominees and winners, nothing but Oscar winners. And I, there's so many I haven't seen. Um, but if you don't have cable, it doesn't exist here. You can't get it at all, which is very frustrating. I will go ahead and say that I think Criterion is definitely more cerebral, but definitely also has a lot of other really interesting and good and fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I definitely watched all the the um, the nineteen seventies Three Musketeers movies on Criterion one time. Mm-hmm. That was just a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Like I wish TCM had something up here, but they don't. Uh, and I th- I think the reason is that because they're sort of part of the um the one big Warner Brothers hive. They uh, in the states they're just part of HBO Max, so we don't have their content up here. 
I might be wrong about that, but I believe that's the case. But HBO has the agreement with Crave, so so why? Is uh, but it only there? only for original content. Oh, you're joking. Yeah. Isn't it a wonderful how streaming was meant to revolutionize everything, isn't it? And now you've just got you haven't got any options that aren't just spending a huge amount of money and just getting all the streamers and all the cable. I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it must be like, and this is going to make me sound old because I'm bitching like an old man right now, but I don't know what it must be like being like 18 to 25 now because when I was that age, like we had Napster and we were all convinced that everything would be available all the time. And that was the promise of the internet. And it's Mm -hmm. actually gotten a lot more restrictive Mm -hmm. because not only are they not putting things on streaming services that frequently, but because they are, they're not making them available physically as frequently, which means that it's just, if you want to watch a movie that's out of print and not on streaming, you're just effed and you can't, and you can't just like go to a thrift shop and find it anymore either. Like it's, it's, uh, it's annoying. It's very annoying. So there's a, there's a a really interesting project. You probably know about this actually. I think Scorsese is involved and it's a, a project that is, making sure that movies that aren't on streaming or release anywhere are not lost. And there's, I saw the stats on this, that there's a massive percentage of like pre sixties American movies that are just gone forever. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very much a thing. It's crazy. That, that uh, and the, the, uh, it's interesting because people, especially like people our age will say that like, Oh, movies in the fifties and sixties had a higher overall quality. And I'm sure that, you know, that people love to revere the seventies and even the eighties at this point, people will talk about how great the eighties were. But the thing that we don't really realize is that all of the bad movies, nobody, they're just not available anymore. So we, we really only see the good stuff from those time periods, which is why Mm -hmm. we have this opinion that they're better (laughs) because we're only watching five, four and five star stuff. There's no, just like, you can't just go on to TCM and watch a fine movie from 1950. They're going to show you something good, right? And same with Criterion. They're going to show you something that's either good or significant or both. So it's a whole thing. Yeah. And I'm sure that's the same with other forms of media. I'm sure there's lots of albums that are lost and books that are lost too. But it, yeah. movies are what I care about. So that's the thing I know about. <laughs> it was interesting saying about how like it used to be like 20 years ago in like choosing the media you watch because my kids had their own cable and their own tv in their bedroom and i put it on for them and my daughter came out she said dad dad can i um can we put netflix on instead because um they they won't let us choose what to watch it's just on (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm like yeah yeah that's how that's how tv worked (laughs) when i was growing up i had four channels (laughs) Actually, I had three, and then they introduced the fourth one, and uh, <laughs> and 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 that was it. And she's just like in horror. Actually, it was more like I don't want to know. I don't want another history lesson. Can I just put Netflix on, please? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the the idea of not choosing what you watch is utterly alien to them. Yeah. Which... Whereas, like you know, we talked about this about the the idea that just like turning on the TV and stumbling across something is mm. something that we both. Yeah. have great nostalgia for that's i would never have chosen to watch any of the things that i watched in whistler this week and only i didn't watch all of anything i watched like bits and pieces because it's just commercials everywhere and they were american commercials and let me tell you i think in america you have to pay for healthcare because holy shit those commercials were like um well, amc's 
AMC's bad for it too. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel bad? Maybe you should do this. Um, AMC this morning had an, a commercial for a penile um, silicon injection, and um, uh, it may one of the side effects was penile fracture. And um, one of the discla- the disclaimers was um, you should seek medical treatment if you hear a popping sound. And I just like that's enough TV for today. <laughs> that, that's I'm I'm done with everything today though it is actually the one thing that the, i think that you know the children because i'm so old and decrepit anyway that they do have an advantage <laughs> in watching things like netflix is that the only the only commercials that they have are like the, the pre the one pre-roll ad before the thing you want to watch plays yeah, yeah so it's you know there's trade-offs yeah my kids are very angry about commercials whenever commercials appear they they are like oh, i want to get back to the thing why is this happening um, you should just tell them one day that if you, you know, it used to be that if you missed something, you just missed it. If you weren't, in, <laughs> if you weren't, if I wasn't in the right place at the right time, I missed Star Trek or I missed whatever the hell show I was watching that week. It just uh, came and went, you know. We're, we're sounding pretty ancient at this point, aren't we? You should also tell them that computers used to communicate by shrieking at each other over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> And if someone else tried to use the phone, then everything was done. Yeah, yeah. Well, the world has changed a lot in our lifetimes, is what we're trying to say, I think. But uh, that's very much like the two movies we're going to be reviewing this week. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, film. Yes. Uh, so we should probably we should probably get going on that. Okay. Uh, speaking of streaming services, we're watching. We watched two films this week that came to uh, one hit that has come and one that will be coming to streaming services near you. The first is uh, Deep Water, starring Ben Affleck and Ana de Armas, which is on Hulu in the states and Amazon Prime here in Canada, which is a very interesting mix. Uh, and then also Apollo Ten and a Half which is coming, the new Linklater film that is coming to Netflix this coming Friday. But we're going to start with Deep Water, I believe. Yes. Uh, A, because we've both seen it and liked it, I believe. <laughs> uh, and because it's, because, it's, because it's already out as well. Yeah. So, the, you know, the discourse now, did, is over, so let's get it out of the way. <laughs> I <laughs> Did Deep Water get a theatrical release along with the streaming, or did it go straight to streaming? No, I don't remember the whole story, but it was made... With the intention of a theatrical release, and then I believe something, something, COVID, something, something, delay, delay, Disney. and then eventually just just so put to streaming, basically. So it was after after numerous delays. And stuff. The Disney acquisition um, delayed it further because it's an erotic thriller. Basically, it's it's a beautifully nineties erotic thriller, and um, uh, I read that Disney did not want to really put much money behind that. And um, the two stars were dating after it, and they and then they broke up before they could release the movie. So they kind of lost all their marketing steam. But what happens in this movie? Why don't you tell us what happened? Actually, why don't I tell us? Because you can tell me about the next one. Yeah, you should <laughs> yeah, tell us about made, this one. And also, exactly I, I, like, I'm not not to say that I did not like this one, but I think you liked it more than I did. I did. Uh, so in Deep Water, which is an adaptation of a Patricia Highsmith book, um, it's the same name. The setup is that you have a couple in a marriage, but there's something up because it's not just the prolonged strange looks they give each other where they, every look seems to be suspicious, but 
there there is very clearly an arrangement happening where uh, the wife, uh, played by Anna de Amos, who the character, what's her name? Melinda, of course, um, is allowed a certain freedom with uh, who she interacts with. And that in the book, it's very, very specific that they're in their arrangement, their marriage, that instead of getting a divorce because they have a young child, um, they come to an agreement that they'll stay together, but the wife is allowed to take any partner she wants. In the book, it's very, very stated very, very clearly. In the movie, it's kind of alluded to. It's never said uh, outright that that's the deal. But there's enough evidence there. You can see it unfolding in front of your eyes, purely because she, uh, the, the character is played, uh, and she's very full of life, and she's very flirtatious. And her husband, played by Ben Affleck, is constantly watching but not stopping. Like... If you imagine, listeners, yourself with your husband or wife and seeing them very openly flirting with somebody else, you'd probably be a bit more proactive in maybe finding out what's going on and maybe stopping it. And there's many, many times where not only does he not do anything, but they actually lock eyes and it doesn't stop. So it's very, very clear there's something going on here. Yeah. I mean, my read also is that... um that they had some kind of agreement, but it was a much different agreement than that of the book that I found mm. out that, that he seemed to, uh, in the movie, it's almost played like he enjoys being cuckolded almost at least for the first half or mm, third. Two thirds I or don't, so. I don't agree. I don't think you think he enjoys it. Well, maybe not enjoys, but certainly like he, the character seems to have a, a, a level of self loathing, loathing that that yes. lends itself I, to. I agree, absolutely. So enjoy is probably the wrong word, but um, he's, he seems like tolerates. it's... Tolerates or whatever... In, I think he might, you know, he might think he deserves it or something like that. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know the right way to say it exactly, but he, he doesn't seem... He doesn't seem angry about it, is what I'm trying to say. You know what's really interesting? Both of us trying to talk about Ben Affleck's portrayal here, and the reason which we're having trouble pinning it down exactly is because he's fucking great in this. Like, really, oh, he's really, under- good. He's really, really good. understated, and everything is in his face. He doesn't have a huge amount to say, really, but he's in most of the scenes. And now, Affleck is a tank. Like, there's a reason he was a... If, if you really want a Frank Miller Batman, then you've probably got your right actor because he is like 6'4". He's huge. And this movie really, really uses his bulk well because uh, as the movie unfolds, he starts openly intimidating the uh, men friends of his wife. And he intimidates them with all kinds of stuff, like all, all kinds of ludicrous claims. And as the movie continues, you start to wonder if these claims are jokes or if they're in fact true until that truth is revealed to you. And it is, if if you've seen things like Adrian Lin's um, Fatal Attraction or um, uh, Verhoeven's Basic Instinct or any of these erotic, steamy thrillers from the 90s, you'll, um, you'll be very familiar with what you're seeing here because it does feel like a bit of a throwback to those 90s kind of uh like two-player erotic thrillers but for me i uh i love the tension i really love the tension in this film between um anna diamas and ben affleck and i thought ben affleck who 
I haven't been a like the biggest fan of in the past as an actor. I thought is absolutely like sensational in this, like just incredibly understated. Could have really been uh, played it more menacingly, uh, but it wouldn't have been a, as effective. Like he's he uh, he uses his stature in a really um, threatening way. But he can also come across as like the nicest guy. And I think that's a really interesting play here. And in the film, when when it becomes clear what his approach is, <laughs> uh, it doesn't it doesn't shy away from him. And it's clearly like he has something wrong. He's not making rational decisions. He has something wrong. And again, Affleck really shows how much he's trying to restrain that at the same time as it all comes out. It reminded me a bit of um, uh, Ryan Gosling in Drive. You know that fantastic scene in Drive when he finally lets his demons out and it turns out that he spends the whole time like trying not to hulk out? Yeah. It, it reminded me a lot, a lot of that. And um, for similar reasons, I thought one of the, the main things I loved about this movie was that boiler pot, that um, uh, like steam kettle of getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And the daughter, I have to say, was fantastic. That the little girl who played their daughter, who has a key, like there's a key moment that she has that is really effective as well. Uh, I thought she was fantastic too. So what's uh, your yeah. take on this? Because I, I think I liked it more than you. So what what did you think? I mean, so basically I liked it. Um I think if you like the work of Adrian Lynn, she's got a really interesting filmography, but like her filmography, the main bulk of her filmography is basically nine and a half weeks, fatal attraction, indecent proposal, Lolita, unfaithful. Like this is the kind of movie that Adrian Lynn makes and she's very good at it. Adrian Lynn being the male English film director. <laughs> Isn't it? That was a no, it's, it's Adrian. Oh, that was Adrian. <laughs> anyway, whatever. This person I, makes I good too. movies. I, do you know what? I think it's really interesting we both made that assumption because I kind of assumed that an erotic thriller would be better handled by a woman than a man. And, and you know what I think uh, it is too is that I saw a really low res photo of him with long shaggy hair, and I was like, oh. So check my check my own biases. There you go. Anyway, <laughs> this person makes really good uh, thrillers. I think that this one is uh, difficult to say. Um, I think that if this one had come out in the '90s, we probably wouldn't be talking about it. So uh, positively, I think compared to some of the ones that did come out in the '90s, especially his prior work, um, it's not amazing. It's fine. It's not bad. It's just not amazing. But given the like. The, the dearth of entries in this particular genre, it's kind of refreshing that it happened at all. You know, like mm. erotic thrillers are a thing and they don't really happen anymore. And they happen, they're going to happen even less with Disney in charge of Fox. Because oh, yeah. Disney doesn't do that kind of thing. And yeah, you won't see I'm that. just, I'm just kind of glad it exists, you know, and it, it's gotten really mixed reviews, mixed to negative, I would say, based on what I've been looking at. But, I don't know. Like it's it's fine. Like and and it's beautiful people and lots of tension. I don't see what the problem is. Plus, you have uh, Lil Rail Howery and Tracy Letts and Dash Mihookin is like mm. two friends and an antagonist, and they're always sort of good and fun. Tracy Letts especially. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's just like the right, just the right mix of like tense uh, and sexy, but also sleazy and beautiful, but also kind of. Yeah, beautiful, but also kind of ugly in some way. Like, it's just the right mix mm-hmm. of those things to be a yeah, good version of what it is. And I liked it. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I don't I don't understand how it's reviewing so so poorly, to be totally honest. I, like I say, I don't mm-hmm. think it's like a five-star movie or anything like that. But it's it's mm-hmm. perfectly serviceable version of what it is. And I think that Ben Affleck and I Anna mean, Diarmas yeah. have really interesting and good chemistry. Yeah. So which was what real else? And, as well. <laughs> which was fairly real because they started dating on the set of this movie. Um and uh and you write also about the little girl who played their daughter. In fact, I think mm. the the best scene in the movie is one where it's just a long continuous take <laughs> of her in the backseat of a car singing a song, which Over is the credits. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. She does it twice in the movie and the, the credits is all her and it's pretty great. Yeah. It is really, really great. And she's not just there to be a child to argue over. She actually, as I mentioned earlier, she has quite a pivotal role in the last act and um, just beautifully directed. I, I, If you were to compare this to the other erotic thrillers of the 90s when they were really in vogue, I don't think it has the, the shock value. It just didn't feel as big as your basic instincts or your nine and a half weeks or, or any of those contemporaries. The, the big ones that we remember, I think, like Fatal Attraction, just they were more like tentpole releases. And this feels much more like a play. It just feels like a, a piece of very uh, sleazy theater that's telling a much smaller story. And yeah, I kind just... of appreciate I, I appreciate the, the lack of um, uh, action-filled last act. I know there was a little bit in this, but like no, compared to, to me... Michael... To to be honest, I don't I don't really agree because like the type of movie that this is this this played out exactly the way that these movies play out. I think that in the '90s it was a more popular type of film, so they were bigger releases, and they often were like star makers for someone in them, mm-hmm. or a vehicle for established actors to like have a more sultry turn. Like Unfaithful is a really good example of that of like Diane Lane getting a really sexy movie. I want to say late in her career, but like moderate, like in her middle ages, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's also another Adrian Lynn movie, um, mm-hmm. but it plays out almost exactly the same way. Not like plot point for plot point, but certainly like beat for beat in terms of like tension ramping and who's going to reveal what and when, and you know. So I think it's more to do with the fact that, as with romantic comedies, it was just a bigger type of movie in the nineties. Right, like, and rom coms are another great example of that. In the '90s, a single rom com could turn someone into a star overnight, and now they're all straight to Netflix or Prime or whatever, and nobody really cares. And that's just you know, in the same way that people are sick of superhero movies now, there was a time when they got sick of westerns, and there was a time when they got sick of other things. Mm. Like, it's just the cycle, and one day they'll be big again, but not anytime soon. <laughs> so, do you do you think we'll ever get back to the glory days of my best friend's wedding? which is a great movie or even like the British four weddings and a funeral sort of era of big. I mean, they're still, um, they're still happening. Funny. They're still happening. They're just not, they're just not happening in the same way. Right. Like mm-hmm. Netflix released a great rom-com. What, two years ago, three years ago called which the one? setup, 
or no, set it up, set it up with Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell, uh, which is about set in New York and they're each an assistant to a high powered sports agent or personality of some kind. And they conspire to get their bosses together to make their work life easier. <laughs> it's a, hmm. it's a, it's a perfect setup for a movie. Lucy Liu plays one boss and Tay Diggs plays the other. And huh. they all, it's a, it's a great movie. And like, oh. there was that Kristen Stewart movie with Kristen Stewart and, um, Mackenzie Davis, where they go home, they go home for Christmas and their fa- Mackenzie Davis's family doesn't know that she's gay. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole setup for the movie. Um, it's, and it's a great romantic comedy. It's, it's really great. There's lots of great romantic comedies happening and there, there's, there isn't a lot of sleazy erotic thrillers happening, not in the same way, but, uh, I wish there would were, you, we should well, make yeah, would more. You, we should, would you like more? <laughs> I mean, we should, we should make more of all the kinds of movies. I mean, do do you think, because 20th Century Fox and their like affiliated studios were, were quite active in making these smaller budgeted like sleazier, darker things. Do you think those days are like done now completely with Disney? I I mean I don't I don't have any inside knowledge. I don't have any way no. to say. But I would say that that thing does not fit into Disney's usual mo. And I think that even if they do keep making those things, and I hope that they do. But even if they do, they're going to make fewer of them because mm-hmm. Disney is not going to compete with itself. So, mm. you know, pre-merger, there were five studios and every weekend you'd have four or five big releases. And now two of those mm. studios are the same studio. So you're going to have three or four every weekend. And every time there's an acquisition, that's what's going to happen. We're going to have fewer movies overall and it's going to be less competition. And it's, yeah, it's, and, and also... Lots of people will lose their jobs. So, yeah. I wonder, I was thinking about that with the acquisition of MGM by Amazon, which apparently is going ahead. Like, MGM. Oh, yeah. Eight and a half billion dollars. One of the great, like, old Hollywood producers of, of classic movies over decades and decades. Now, what what happens to that? Does that just become a brand now? Or. Like, is it all just well, going to be, be prime and are to they be fair, releases? To be fair, MGM was already owned by Sony, I believe it was, um, and as operated as like a separate entity, but owned by Sony. I think it was Sony, um, but I mean, it's hard to not be cynical about Amazon Prime buying MGM just for their back catalog when they've already greenlit a TV show based in the James Bond universe. They have. They have, like a, a race, a race across the world type show or something. It, it sounds, it sounds doesn't sound like James Bond at all. But they've greenlit it. <laughs> it they've they've greenlit a TV series set in the James Bond universe, and okay. it was like a it was two days later. Like, huh? It's all just about the content, right? Like yeah. Prime. The bigger worry for me isn't that. You know, is that that where does that back catalog go now? Does it stay on mm. Criterion and TCM or does it exclusively Amazon Prime? Mm. It's uh, well, from again, business... just, to, just to circle back, like we're getting to an era where things are less available mm. and always will be. Because why would they ever re-release classics on DVD if they can just charge you a hundred bucks a year for Prime Video? I've I've heard that from um, Disney um Disney are uh, dialing down how many physical releases they're doing to to push people to Disney Plus more. I've heard that as well. Yeah, and apparently they're dialing down like one of the studios. I can't remember. I 
maybe I'm wrong about this, but I thought I heard that one of the studios just was going to stop doing 4K Blu-rays. So if you want to watch it in 4K, you got to subscribe to their streaming service. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, lovely. What an optimistic way to finish yeah, our conversation so, uh, about Deep Water. Yeah, that's very much like an erotic thriller. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, just to circle back to the movie itself, I liked it. And I hope they make mm-hmm. more movies like it. I have no faith that they will, but I hope that they do. Yeah. I it was a great uh, like the casting of this is is make or break and I thought it was cast beautifully. Anna Diamas when you especially when you consider she's not acting in her own language as well, in her first language, she was just so many different layers of flirt and hatred and trust and distrust and a really good kind of foil for Ben Affleck's like very stoic but stirring kind of character I thought she was great and she she had to do a lot on this she had to play a lot of drunk and it's quite hard to play drunk without actually being drunk um and I thought she did a, a really 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 good job like a very free kind of performance she was good and obviously very very trusting because you see a lot of her in this movie and um Mm-hmm. She, she, I think that says a lot about Adrian Lin as well, that he's able to create a, uh, a situation where an actress can feel comfortable to do these kind of things. So, good for him. Yeah. So, what would you give it out of five? I no, I I would give this a four out of five. Like, I really, wow. I really liked it. It ticked, it ticked all my boxes. I, um, I thought when, when the hammer dropped towards the end i was on board and um i was really impressed i already liked anadamas but i was really impressed impressed with affleck in this i thought he was fantastic and i and the film is made in with this beautiful circular like narrative where you don't you don't realize but there's it's bookended and uh, that really worked for me and uh just as a film it, it was it was it was exactly the kind of thing I want from this kind of thriller. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much exactly it. Three out of, three out of five for me. Again, yeah. I don't I don't think I liked it as much as you, but like it's it's a yeah. type of movie that I you know, we gotta watch these things because otherwise they won't make more of them. Right. It's the same reason why every yeah, time Netflix absolutely. makes a horror movie, I make sure to watch it so the algorithm knows <laughs> even if it's bad, I just want them to keep making yeah. horror movies. Yes, absolutely. So. Okay, good. Well, well why don't move, we move on to the next movie? Yes, let's move on to, and I'm going to say this just to annoy you, Apollo, <laughs> ten and one half. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Apollo, ten and a half, uh, which is subtitled uh, A Space Age Childhood, is the forthcoming rotoscope animated film from Richard Linklater, premiering on Netflix uh, this coming week on April the... <laughs> <laughs> um first april the first um originally sure. premiered at south by southwest earlier this um, uh, this month actually and uh to uh critical acclaim and uh yeah it's uh you, so, you didn't you, you, you didn't get no, to watch I, the whole thing did you i didn't watch any of it i watched the trailer yeah Oh, Does that count? Yeah. Tell, tell me yeah. what happens in Ten and a Half Astronauts. <laughs> uh, so Apollo Ten and a Half is basically a an animated boomer nostalgia trip, and it's kind of <laughs> lovely. Uh, it's 
Richard Linklater basically remembering his own childhood. He had set in 1969 uh, in Houston in the shadow of the Apollo program as like around the same time as the, the Apollo 11 moon landings. The main character is a 10 and a half year old kid and he was nine in 1969. And it seems to just be most of it is just memories from his childhood about how his family existed and interacted and how kids were freer. And um, it's, it's narrated by Jack Black and the voice cast is all good. And I don't know how you feel about the rotoscoped, uh, animation style, which is where they they shot stuff in live action and they animate over it, like a Scanner mm-hmm. Darkly or in um, what was the other one he did like that? Waking Life, Waking Life. Um, and I'm fine. I'm fine with that. I think it's a little more stylized, or a little maybe a little less stylized, a little more rudimentary um, mm-hmm. animation style than those two are. Um, but at the end of the day, I think t- I was about to say it's 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 slight, but that's kind of a an unfair word it's just it's not very heavy it's looking back on your childhood with rose-colored glasses to a time you're nostalgic for by a boomer and if you're on board with that i think you probably you will love this movie because what's it is about, what, what's, the, what's the story what's the premise so, so well it's there the kind of really isn't one <laughs> is the thing <laughs> oh. Oh, um, yeah. so I... there is there is this sort of frame story where at the very beginning of the film Two, he's just at school. This nine-year-old kid is at school, and two like suited NASA people show up because he lives in Houston, where NASA is headquartered. And they say they take him aside, and they're like, "You've you know you've passed the national physical exam three times in a row. You're the best in your team at kickball. You're very popular among your friends. And we built the space capsule twenty percent too small, so we need a kid to go to space." <laughs> and then, and then it like cuts to him doing some training and then it says, well, actually maybe we should start at the beginning. And then it's just, there's literally just 45 minutes of this is my dad and these are my five siblings and that's my mom. <laughs> and this is how we interacted. And this is what oh it was like God. being a kid in 1969. And eventually it comes back around to like this training he's supposedly doing, but really they're just, it's, she's just a nine year old in 1969 watching, watching the moon landing. That's what, that's the whole movie. That's basically the whole movie. And, um, but there's but there's lots of just like, you know, we were the last generation to ride our bikes behind the trucks view and deep to kill the mosquitoes. We didn't think it was dangerous and we didn't know any better. Like, you know, like, oh, I don't yeah. think I would have enjoyed that. We, uh, you know, we played baseball and the coach, every time we committed an error in a game, the coach lined up three other players and they pitched baseballs at us as punishment. You know, <laughs> like, uh, every day seemed like an, uh, every adult in your life was trying to find an excuse to hit you with a paddle. <laughs> it's. but then also like lots of you know lots of really lovely just remembrances of of times his siblings interacted and and you know how what it was just what it was like to be a kid in 1969 and again like i think if you already if you like link later you will like this and and if you don't you might bounce off of it and if you're into nostalgia for the 60s and for the Apollo program in particular, you'll probably love this. And if not, you might bounce off of it. I I didn't think it was amazing, but it's a solid movie. Like, I get why people are loving it. I think it's pretty good. It's a solid 3 out of 5 for me, personally. Hmm. 
So I, in terms of link later, I did not like Scanner Darkly at all, and I didn't get on with the rotoscoping and that. And when I watched the trailer for this, I was like, "There's something about rotoscoping in a movie that doesn't work for me," which is weird because I remember distinctly when it um, it started in video games with Prince of Persia, and it was like, "Holy shit, have you? This is like unlike anything else." And rotoscope games look fantastic, but there's something about when it's used in a movie, it just I, maybe it just feels too smooth. Like there's no depth to it. I don't know what it is, mm. but this doesn't really have that. This doesn't really have that problem. I mean the the animation, the character designs are all interesting, and the animation style itself is not not really meant to be realistic. Like oftentimes the uh, like when they're on the baseball field, there's just like smudges of green that are meant to represent grass and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a mix of styles in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I I didn't didn't really have a problem with the rotoscoping, but I know that some people do. My wife doesn't like it either. Um, right. And, uh, you know, it's similar to, to CGI rotoscoping, right? Like it either, it can either inform the animation or it can hinder the performance or like, there's lots mm. of discourse about it that I don't think is worth going into right now, but yeah. Um, I mean, I, this, again, this is a movie I think that you need to, you might need to approach on your own, on its wavelength rather than your own to sort of appreciate. And mm-hmm. to be perfectly fair, I bet my dad will love this movie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. this might be a movie for your dad. It's a movie by your dad for your dad about a time when your dad was a kid. Pretty much. Would you so, say you're a link, you're a link later fan because you love everybody wants some as well. Don't you? I mean, I have, let me just look up his filmography so I can answer that question a little more. I, I'm looking at it now. I had no idea he directed School of Rock. Like, I had absolutely no idea that was a link later film because I love. Yeah, it. and that's the thing is that his filmography is is quite varied, and I would say I like more of his stuff than I dislike. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that the Before trilogy is mm-hmm. uh, a masterpiece in three pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Dazed and Confused and I love Everybody Wants Some uh, Bernie is a good movie uh, Boyhood is a singular piece of art that I, to be fair I don't really get along with the movie Boyhood but I can't imagine anyone else having made no. it I'm, I'm really interested to watch that one day yeah um, so again I think that he's a filmmaker that I wouldn't say I'm the, the hugest fan of but I certainly appreciate what mm-hmm. he does and why he does it. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I, you know, when I'm looking for uh, a nostalgia piece, he's definitely a filmmaker you might run to for that. I think that mm-hmm. both, both Dazed and Confused and Everybody Wants Some are excellent examples of that. And I think that this is a pretty good one. I think Apollo 10 and a half is a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my, my favorite of his is, is personally is probably Everybody Wants Some. But again, and also just, he has a very naturalistic style, and sometimes when he's doing this uh, rotoscoping thing, which he's done a couple of times now, I kind of wonder if that's a hindrance because his style is so like, let's just point the camera and walk around and chat a bit, you know? Like mm-hmm. the middle before movie, the before midnight, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, before sunset, before sunset. The one where they, they you know, it's the second one. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy have 
reunited nine years after the original and they just walk around Paris talking and it's beautiful. It's so good. Such a good movie. That's my favorite of the three, I think. And uh, it's that style. He's able to coax such interesting and natural, comfortable performances out of people. Mm. And I kind of wonder if covering it up with animation is the right choice. But I certainly respect that he's willing to be like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do this this time. I'm going to cover it up with animation. So why do you think this film could have been told without the rotoscoping? No, I don't actually. Because a, a big portion of it takes place. I mean, it could have, but it would have been a much bigger budget piece because a big portion of it takes place on the moon <laughs> and in oh. and in rocket ships and, you know, in NASA training equipment. And uh, there's lots of sequences where it's, you know, it's presented as though it's what's happening, but it's clearly this kid's ima- imagination. And uh, no, I don't, I don't think it would be the same. I don't think it would be the same, same kind of movie if it wasn't animated. Hmm. If that makes sense. I don't think it would be, it would still be a nostalgia piece, but it would, it would be a much bigger budget production with, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel so intimate. It wouldn't feel so personal. I don't think. I wonder what his process is. I wonder how much he films, because I get the idea that he films the actors then traces over the actors and adds like any background or scenery that he wants to from. Oh yeah. All uh, the, all, as far as I know, all the filming was in front of a green screen. As far as I know. Right. I might be wrong about that, but that's what I understand. Um, and then like lots of sequences, like everyone where you're seeing a spaceship is just fully animated with no, Mm -hmm. it's not actually rotoscoped. It's just animated. So, oh, interesting. So there's a mix of animation in there. I mean, it all looks the same. It's just that I don't think that he, you know, built a model spaceship and flew it in oh, order to I animate see. over right. it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it sounds it intriguing. Is... Like, it sounds, it sounds intriguing. I might check it out because it does sound really, like, different. Like, if nothing else, it sounds really different. And it feels, and I think the word I, I just, I should have led with really is that it does feel very personal. It does feel like this is my remembrance of my childhood. And I feel like it might not matter if I like it because he got to make it. And it's, it feels like it's something that he maybe wanted or maybe needed to make something. It's a story he wanted to tell, right? Like, has he mentioned it as a, a autobiographical piece or is it, is it influenced in by... All it's in all the marketing. Right. It's influenced and oh, is it? influenced oh, okay. by his own childhood. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that, you know, most of the stuff to do with his family and the way, again, the way his siblings interact and the way his parents interact with the children <clears throat> is all straight out of his childhood. Cause it all sounds like right. stuff out of my childhood <laughs> <laughs> and uh, stories that my mom and dad used to tell me about their childhoods, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Sounds fascinating. I might check it out. Yeah, again, I can't, I think, I think that there's a a fair chance that you might not connect with it. But again, Mm -hmm. I bet Mm -hmm. your dad would. I know my dad will. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, there's definitely an audience for it. And the other thing is that like, I'm a big fan of the, you know, movies set in the era of the Apollo program. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think part of the, my issue with it is that I'm I am sort of getting to a point where I'm kind of over boomer nostalgia. So because you know it's been the dominant form of nostalgia in filmmaking wow. for my entire life, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but I don't even really have a point there. I'm just saying I think that's I 
I didn't I didn't dislike this movie, but I didn't exactly connect with it either. You know, I just I think it's I think it's good. I appreciate that it exists, and I think that there's a definite audience for it. And right. I hope that that audience loves it. I I'm sure that they will. I'm sure that they will. I think I will give it a try. I do love some classic NASA. Like we caught a little bit of Apollo 13 as well, and I do love that sort of very physical, clunky kind of space travel era where mm-hmm. you can tie things together with tape and re- reroute your, your, your toilets to get more power to your thrusters and things. I do love stuff like that. Um, how many stars are you giving this? Three. I'll give it three. Three to five. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Is it the yeah. kind of thing you'd watch again or we, once you've seen it, there's no real need to go back to it? Uh <sighs> I don't know if that's a fair question because there's not that many things that I do necessarily, not that many new things that I do necessarily rewatch anymore. Oh, interesting. Like, I definitely rewatch things. Um, I guess the answer is no, because a a good example of a a movie that was a yes to that question would be Dune from last year, which the first time Mm -hmm. I watched it, I did not connect with at all i felt it was uh, really really hollow really emotionally empty and i've watched that movie oh, right. like four or five times now and it gets more meaningful every time i watch it all right good because i'm i'm at stage one of that i've seen it once and i i love um Villeneuve. i loved arrival and i adored blade runner and uh this felt exactly as you said like hollow and kind of empty and well i don't hollow and empty but um kind of bland almost and and not just the color palette. And a side note, I cannot wait for some kind of global apocalypse to take out all com- CG systems. So people have to go back to models and map paintings and actual props and people throwing sand across the screen to simulate dust storms and really shitty looking cardboard sandworms. Like, I don't care. I want all of that back. Like, stop frame animation, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, my hot take is that I think I think CG is a tool that needs to be deployed correctly, and that we mm-hmm. overdeploy it. But there's definitely a place for it. So yes, but but yeah, I mean, the answer is I don't I don't know I don't think I'll rewatch this. I don't think I need to. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm sure that those who really connect with it will. Again, I think mm-hmm. this is a movie that's, that's made by and for a specific audience, and I don't happen to be in it. And but the people who like it are going to yeah. love it. All right, cool. Excellent. Well, I, yeah. I think I will ha- take a look at it. So what have we got coming? Well, not just next week. Well, I guess next week is going to be a reaction to what's coming tomorrow. Indeed, we are recording this on a Saturday to be published on a Sunday. And the Sunday we're publishing is Oscar Sunday. So we will be doing our Ooh. annual live bloggage of the Oscars, uh, which I know is kind of an old-fashioned way to do things now, but that's the way we do it, so we're going to keep doing it. Um, So if you want to follow along with our reactions to the Oscars live, you can do that tomorrow on the blog. Uh, We'll be tweeting as well, I am sure. I love our Oscars live blog. Like, I love it. I just feel like all the negativity and pessimism and all the sarcasm at the uh, film industry just comes out and flows out. It's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Um, if, if the films, if the films I like don't win, it's going to be even worse. I don't think the films you like are going to win. Just for the record, <laughs> they're <so>. really not. <laughs> um, they never do. Yeah, uh, and I assume that next week we will be speaking about. Uh, I think I think next week's going to be an interesting 
episode because the, the main things we have going on are going to be reactions to the Oscars. And mm-hmm. it's the tail end of the Canadian Film Fest, which I am currently attending. And mm-hmm. I think we'll probably do a sort of a survey of the films that I got to watch at Canadian Film Fest, um, all of which you have access to as well. So if you want me to make sure I, I can make sure you get those if you want. Mm, yes. Um, there's a couple of good Canadian films uh, that I'd really like to talk about. So we could do that. Okay. Yes. We do. We do have Marvel's Moon Knight um, <laughs> happening this week. But it's uh, it's embargo and premiere dates don't really line up with our publishing schedule, so I don't know how we're going to be covering it, if at all. Um, I can't say anything in detail, but I can say I've seen the first two thirds of the season, and don't don't use any adjectives. That's a whole I, different embargo. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I've seen I've seen the first the first ones, and I think that if the Marvel, how can I put this? If the Marvel hype train <laughs> continues unabated as it has done with the previous Marvel TV shows, I will be in the minority on this one. Ooh, interesting. I think, yeah, in um, fact, so we're allowed to talk about it on social media, just not in any depth. So I actually posted about it on Twitter last night that after I finished the fourth one, that, um, how, that there's, there's, many... there's things about it that I like, but there's a lot of things about it that I just can't get past. How many Dick Van Dykes out of 10 do you give Oscar Isaac's British accent? Uh, ten, 10 being Mary Poppins. I think that they went to the same Australian school to learn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> um, but I can't say anything more because that would break the, the like, one of the, like, the bazillion different... Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I can't talk in depth about it. Um, okay. But we... I might be able to wrangle a special episode with me and someone else who's seen it. So we'll, we'll see if we can figure that out. Okay. Awesome. I do have a couple of interview episodes coming up as well from the Canadian film fest. So maybe not this week, but next, uh, you should have some extra episodes. Yeah. Too. You got some busy stuff coming up. A couple of really interesting things you got lined up. Yeah. I, I look forward to listening and reading. <laughs> oh, while we're talking about British accents, uh, if we can loop back to cliffhanger, if you don't mind for a second, uh, I completely forgot that John Lithgow, who is the <laughs> the leader of the baddies, has is British in this movie, and one of his henchmen is like London British, and he when he tries to kill, um, uh, who's your man, um, Hooker, uh, Michael, Michael Rooker, Michael Rooker, he tries to kill Michael Rooker by pretending he's playing a football match and commentating himself like cheering himself on like he's playing at Wembley because he's British so he has to do that when he kills someone but John Lithgow's accent is more posh but it's really like forced Downton Abbey posh and so like when people fall off helicopters it's really like oh dear he seems to have fallen it would be a shame (laughs) darling do you know the definition of true love sacrifice and it's just so beautifully forced it's amazing so uh, i hope oscar isaacs is that level (laughs) every time we talk about british accent movies all i can think about is that whole eddie is a routine where he compares hollywood movies (laughs) to british movies (laughs) uh he's right of course and a man bursts into room and goes oh and and then a woman says what is it sebastian i'm busy arranging matches Well, I just thought that perhaps I... Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Um, 
I'm not going to do the whole routine, but you should definitely look up Eddie Izzard's Dress to Kill if you've never seen it. It's the funniest yes, yes, comedy sketch always. comedy show. Is that is that the same sketch show that has Noah's Ark and the Evil Ducks? No, that's the one before. That's called Glorious. He did a, a string of three or four stand-up shows in oh a row, all of which are gold. My kids, I my kids keep getting put through Evil Ducks, quack, and um, <laughs> and. Um, La songe, la chat, dans la chat, la chien dans la bouche, and la songe. Oh, yeah. So that one is that one is dressed to kill, where he tells he does this whole show, and then he comes out for the encore and talks about how he did a tour in France, and then just redoes a third of the show, but in French, and it's somehow (laughs) funnier. (laughs) It's somehow just as funny. It's it's so good. He's so good. Yeah. He's he's amazing. I saw him once. He dated one, uh, my drama teacher, and he came for lunch with her once, and was sat in the cafe as me. And I just was not able to do anything but stare. Pretty much, I get quite starstruck. I know you don't at all, but I get very starstruck. I like to think I'm very very cool in these situations, but I turn into late nineties Hugh Grant and just basically, <laughs> oh, uh, 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 um, oh, uh, and then just. Yeah, you turn you turn into that guy from British cinema who bursts into a room to yes. find it easier yes. there to go. I, uh, oh. <laughs> yes, completely. That's yeah. my life. Well, that's been wonderful. Thank you for another wonderful hour <laughs> listening to us. How could you support us? Indeed. Uh, first off, thank you all for listening. We greatly appreciate you all. Um, if you like what you've heard, you could give us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. We are on most of them, including the one you're listening to us on right now. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to follow, uh, support us a little more directly, we do, of course, have our uh, Patreon and Kofi, and you can find those at the website, which is awesomefriday.ca. Uh, uh, analytics tell me that we have a few more listeners again this week. So uh, welcome to all of you. We hope you stay. We hope you, Hello. Like, we hope you like what you've heard. Um, hey, looks nice. I can see you all. Thank <laughs> hey, you. Yes, you. You're great. <laughs> anyway. Um we, of course, uh, this episode is, you know, recorded and produced by me, Bradley Simpson, and starring me and Simon Best. And we record and produce on the unceded ancestral lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations. And, um, oh, that's all I got. Uh, any, any last words, Simon, other than goodbye and thank you? No, I just stay. I'm British, so I stay very quiet when we talk about the lands we're on. Because my daughter asked me about them. She's like, Dad, why did did the native people give the land to? The people? <laughs> I'm like, we're not, we're not, we're not. Um, so I've, I, I, uh, I told her, of course they did. They're like, oh, hello, you have culture here. Take our lands. But uh, no, I, I, I stay very quiet, and I'm very appreciative that we get to live here. So thank you for listening. Thank you for and listening. I hope you listen soon. Take care. Take care. And thank you for joining us on this awesome Friday. <laughs> <laughs>